How you know Broomhilda's first masters was German? Broomhilda is a German name. If they named her, it stands to reason they could German. That's a gals, where you from, named Broomhilda? Broomhilda is the name of a character in the most popular of all the German legends. It's a story about Broomhilda? Oh, yes, there is. Do you know it? Well, every German knows that story. Would you like me to tell you? Well, Brunhilde was a princess. She was a daughter of Wotan, god of all gods. Anyway, her father is really mad at her. What's she do? I can't exactly remember. She, she disobeys him in some way. So he puts her on top of the mountain. Boomhilde's on the mountain? It's a German legend. There's always going to be a mountain in there somewhere. And he puts a fire-breathing dragon there to guard the mountain. And he surrounds her in a circle of hellfire. And there, Brunhilde shall remain unless a hero arises brave enough to save her. Does the fellow arise? Yes, Django. As a matter of fact, he does. A fellow named Siegfried. The secret save? Quite spectacularly so. He scales the mountain because he's not afraid of it. He slays a dragon because he's not afraid of him. And he walks through hellfire because Brunhilde is worth it. I know how you feel. I think I'm just starting to realize that. Well, good day to you, people of the podcast. This is Paul Sonstaby, the host of the Structured Rambling Podcast, a podcast about literature and text related to literature and the ideas therein. A little bit of uh, Quentin Tarantino to start you off from Django Unchained, followed by some Richard Wagner. I realize it is complicated to enjoy something like Gude Damerung, but, uh, well, it suits where we're at. Today, I am diving back, back, back into some of the thicker, bigger literature. Oh, actually, that's not true. It's quite thin, uh, but grander. I'm going back into something kind of of the Viking stuff persuasion, although it's uh, broader than just to the Vikings. I am talking about the Volsunga Saga, the saga of the Volsungs, the uh, the quintessential Norse 
dragon story, although there's much more to it than that. The Greek gods and their heroes have long had what I see as an unfair high seat, a high regard in the Western world. It's not their fault. Uh, They're good stories. But the fact that the Greek heroes, the gods, um, the legends were picked up by first the Roman Empire, then the Byzantine Empire, and again taken up during the Renaissance has sort of given them this staying power. They have influenced the most influential Western societies, if you will. Me, I've always had an affinity for the stories from the North, partly because that's my heritage and partly because as a kid I read a lot of Thor comic books. But despite the popularity the Marvel movies have brought to a version of a version of a version of the Norse myths and their gods and their heroes, the real thing has remained sort of a niche interest by comparison to the Greeks. There are several reasons, of course. There's less surviving material about the Norse. Uh, Scandinavia became literate much later, and uh, you didn't have such literary heavyweights as Ovid, Plutarch, and William Shakespeare extending the Greek influence with reference to them and use of their characters and themes. Um, And it never helps an old culture when one of its biggest proponents is a country that loses two world wars and worse yet in the second one of those world wars the uh, nazis twisted norse culture and iconography 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 the graphics of the icons whatever in carrying out their insanity that sort of stuff tends to hurt your sales Me, though, I love the North. And today, I want to talk to you about this greatest of all the Norse heroic sagas, and probably the oldest. It is the saga of the Volsungs, the story of Sigurd, the dragon slayer. Um, It is the Norse equivalent of the Iliad, but it is far less famous. In fact, it's much more famous through its influences than through its own story. Uh, It has influenced, most notably, the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, and, as I said, for inspiring Richard Wagner's Ring Cycle, which, unfortunately, leads to a connection with Wagner's anti-Semitism and his inspiration to another infamous anti-Semite, Adolf Hitler, and the Nazis. This is unfair but unavoidable. Any version that you read of the saga of the Volsungs or Volsunga saga, depending on how you want to anglicize it. Anyways, uh, any any rendering of it, um, the connection to Wagner and more significantly the Nazis uh, has to happen. It's a lamentable association. Uh, At worst, there are whole themes and images lifted from the saga that are used by Wagner and used, as I said, in Nazi propaganda. It's guilty by association. So the saga spent a lot of time wallowing in taboo, and it, in my mind, deserves better than that. 
Like the later Icelandic sagas, uh, which are much more historical, this is the story of generations of a family. This saga is essentially divided into three main movements. First, the mythical origins of the family, going back to a connection to the god Odin, or as uh, my friend Christoph was saying in the Germanized version at the beginning of this podcast, Voltan. Uh, we have the great hero Volsung himself, his son Sigmund, the woman Signy, the and eventually Sigmund's son Sigurd, the greatest of them all, who in the mm, very famous, if not more famous, uh, Wagnerian version is Siegfried. Not just Wagner's version, the German version, he's Siegfried. You might know him as Siegfried first, but he started as Sigurd. Sigurd's adventures are the most famous part of the story. Uh, seeing another connection to the gods, there are the shape-shifting brothers, Otter and Fafnir. Um, Sigurd's defeat of the dragon with his mythic sword, his gaining of the wisdom of birds, um, his betrayal by Regin, um, his acquisition of a powerful helmet and lots and lots of gold, and his pursuit of the beautiful Brynhil, or in the German version, Brumhilda. The final section has Sigurd and Brynhild's fate, uh, and this is where it gets, I don't want to say decidedly historical, but more historical, seeing appearances by actual figures from history, including one Atli, who is a version of Attila the Hun. And um, this follows after Sigurd's death, the the misadventures of one Gudrun, uh, Sigurd's widow, and uh, it goes off on its own. This saga was written in prose sometime in the 1200s, but it's based on source poetry that was composed orally over the 800 years before that. Uh, like the works of Homer, an oral text told and retold for so long shows us just how central it was in the culture of the Norse, and especially in the Viking era. So, that's the essence of the plot. Thematically, it moves from myth to epic to loose history. All Norse sagas have certain lone themes, and the more mythic, the more likely you are to see elements like the ones in here. So because it, it is, especially early on, a decidedly mythic uh, saga, you see more um, magic and, and things like that. And some of them are definitely tropes of traditional Norse sagas. In the early two parts... That is the story of Volsung and uh, Sigurd's other ancestors. You have greed, revenge, uh, shape-shifting, and trickery. The trickery comes up several times and is here because of the presence of Odin. This particular saga has a few notable appearances of the Norse Allfather, and that should make you worried as a reader. Now, Marvel Comics and the Marvel Cinematic Universe has made it clear that Loki is the Norse trickster god, and that's true. But what Marvel gets wrong is making Odin some venerable, powerful, god-like, well, like god, if you can hear when I'm capitalizing and when I'm not. Tolkien patterned Gandalf after Odin with 
we touches a Christ in there, and we tend to retroactively see Odin uh, as some sort of benign deity. In actuality, I'm not sure who I'd rather gamble with on a warm summer's evening on a train bound for nowhere, Loki or Odin. Odin is just as treacherous and far more powerful and thus far more dangerous. He sacrifices his own eye for wisdom. And in a neat trick, he hangs himself and dies on a tree to learn the secrets of the dead because he's one of the gods of the dead, so he can also raise himself back to life. That's a neat trick, but it also shows dude can't be trusted. Odin is the god of kings and leaders, people who can't be trusted and have to make tough decisions. They're complicated individuals. Thor is the simple god of the simple man. Thor protects you from the agents of chaos, the Etin, the Jotun, the giants, which are simplified to be giants, but they're they're figures of chaos. Odin would feed you to a snake if it helped him get ahead. And so his presence in the saga is a warning that this isn't going to probably have a happy ending. So in the first section about Sigurd's ancestors, Odin makes lots of appearances. Sigi, Sigurd's great-great-grandfather, is possibly a child of Odin. All heroes are that much better when they come from demigod stock. And at the beginning of the saga, Odin guides Sigi from the other world. Sigi is a raider and an outlaw and becomes ruler of the Huns. He is betrayed and supplanted. He's revenged by his son. And very quickly, we have a third generation born in Volsung. And our saga has its namesake. Volsung is a busy man and he has 11 children. Uh, the oldest of which are the twins, the boy Sigmund and the girl Signy. Volsung is a king and his son must establish himself as a strong hero in the making. So Odin shows up to make a bold challenge with hints of the King Arthur legend. So I am, all of my quotes uh, are from the Jesse L. Bayok translation of the saga of the Volsungs. I have a couple of different versions. I have... Tolkien's uh, poetic retelling, but uh, the Bayok version is is by far the most approachable prose version. Anyways, so I'm quoting from page 38. It is now told that when people were sitting by the fires in the evening, a man came into the hall. He was not known to the men by sight. He was dressed in this way. He wore a mottled cape that was hooded. He was barefoot and had linen breeches tied around his legs. As he walked up to Barnstock, he held a sword in his hand, while over his head was a low-hanging hood. He was very tall and gray with age, and he had only one eye. He brandished the sword. Everybody's always brandishing swords. Anyways, he brandished the sword and thrust it into the trunk so that it sank up to the hilt. Words of welcome failed everyone. Then the man began to speak. He who draws this sword out of the trunk shall receive it from me as a gift. And he himself shall prove that he has never carried a better sword than this one. Then, through betrayal and evil women, which are both constant ideas in the Norse sagas, Volsung and his sons are captured and tied to a tree. Sister Signy is in an unhappy marriage, and they had tried to rescue her from it. 
over the course of nine nights, nine, of course, is a very big power number to the Norse. Over nine nights, a she-wolf, likely a skin changer, comes and kills Volsung and the other brothers until only Sigmund lives. Signy, the sister, sends him some men who put honey in his mouth. And when the she-wolf comes again, he shows what he's made of heroically. Um, as she starts licking the, licking the honey, he rips her tongue out with his teeth. Uh, the wolf is revealed to be the shape-shifting mother of Signy's evil husband and eyes. Signy goes and stays in the forest with Sigmund, and awkwardly they share a night of incest, and from it is born Sinfjotli. I know, I know, don't worry, we'll get to Sigurd and you won't have to keep track of so many names. Sinfjotli and Sigmund don wolf skins, which allows them to become shapeshifters. The Vikings, uh, of course, believed that a man who wore the skin of an animal could take on the properties of that beast, uh, especially in battle. Every, every Viking army had a few of these crazies in wolf or bear skins. Uh, they'd work themselves up into a frenzy. They'd bite their shields. Um, some may have even been on uh, psychedelic mushrooms. And a man in a bear shirt, right, uh, like a Bjorn, a, a bear shirt, uh, translated to berserker, berserker. And that's where we get our term, berserk. Uh, Sigmund uh, Sinfjotli and even Sigir's mother give mythical connection to this. And shapeshifting is a big, big motif in the Norse myths. Um, and it is even a big, a big uh, common idea in Viking, Norse, and Icelandic sagas. And when they're not shapeshifting, they're at least dressing and acting like wolves constantly. You will find outlaws uh, being compared to wolves uh sometimes uh literally they become wolves and sometimes they just run around in the forest peeing on trees the first part of the actual sigurd story is the most important and famous part of the whole saga sigurd grows up a strong and good-looking boy and several times he sees odin in his childhood odin gives him gifts like a horse he also gives him advice um, like digging some trenches, oddly, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, so, especially early on, Odin takes a direct and focused role in Sigurd's affairs. In the place Sigurd grows up, there's a blacksmith called Regin, who, after some false starts, forges Sigurd's mighty sword. How do we know it's a mighty sword? Because it gets a name. Gram. Regin then reveals that he knows where a great hoard of gold is, as well as a magic but cursed ring. Uh, and some other nice treats like a helmet. There are two problems. Number one, there is a dragon. And number two, the dragon is family. Regin then tells his story. He had two brothers, Otter and Fafnir. Otter was a shapeshifter and could turn into... Well, an otter. And he'd swim around until one day three gods, Odin, Loki, and Honer, are bored while fishing and start hucking rocks into the water and they kill otter with these rocks. 
uh, Regan, Otter, and Fafnir's father demands a wergild, a man price, something you pay a family when you kill someone in that family. This was a complex law um, that attempted to prevent blood feuds from escalating. There was actually a value to a person's life. You paid it off, and then the the they couldn't get revenge. Uh, I guess R- Regan's father had some clout because he could demand this of deities. Anyway, he has the gods cover Otter's skin. So they skin Otter, which is a weird way to pay homage to him. They skin him, and uh, the the gods are to cover it, the skin, in gold. Um, it doesn't, they don't successfully cover it completely. Uh, and so in a series of events, Loki takes uh, dwarf gold to um, to cover the skin, and uh, he he takes it from the dwarf and Vari, who resents it. So he curses a magic ring, uh, which the go- which goes with the gold. This cur- this is where the cursed ring comes from. By the way, this is the origin of a very famous canning. Okay, cannings are very unique metaphors to Viking and Icelandic sagas. A canning is where you usually in two words refer to something by talking about its qualities. So for example, a ship would be a sea steed, um, a, a, uh, a, a, a sword would be warrior's bane. Okay, and so gold is very often referred to as otter's ransom. So then Fafnir, the brother Fafnir, takes both gold and ring and broods over them, and the curse on the ring and the gold turns him into a dragon. This is the dragon that uh, uh, Regan proposes Sigurd kill. So Sigurd digs a trench because Fafnir is a flightless dragon. He's a wiggly worm. And when Fafnir passes over the trench, Sigurd intends to gut the soft underbelly with the sword Gram. Odin shows up and gives him the rather less spectacular advice to to dig extra trenches for the blood to run out, I guess. Maybe there's a chance Sigurd would drown. I I don't know. I've never uh, undercut a a dragon before in a trench. Generally, it goes off without a hitch, but the dying dragon taunts and curses the hero. This is serious business being cursed by a dragon, and the gold and the twice-cursed ring are going to cause some trouble. So uh, what I want to show you, or what I want to read to you now, this is uh, from page 64, and uh, uh, Fafnir is talking at length with, um, with uh, uh, Sigurd. It takes Fafnir a while to die, okay? And so, uh, quote, Fafnir answered, I suggest you take your horse and ride away as fast as you can, because it often happens that he who receives a mortal wound avenges himself. Sigurd said, that is your advice, but I will do otherwise. I will ride to your den and there take the massive hoard of gold which your kin possessed. Fafnir replied, you will ride there where you will find so much gold that it will be plentiful for the rest of your days. And that same gold will be your death. 
as it will be the death of all who possess it. Sigurd stood up and said, I would ride home, even though it would mean losing this great treasure, if I knew that I would never die. But every brave man wants to be wealthy until that one day. And you, Fafnir, lie in your death throes until hell has you. Then Fafnir died. And so the curse is laid upon this gold. Uh, Regan tells Sigurd to cook the dragon's heart for him. Which is a bizarre thing to request of your dead brother's heart. But when your brother turns into a dragon, I guess you know things. So Sigurd does so. Uh, He licks some of the juices from his thumb and suddenly he can understand the speech of birds who he hears gossiping that Sigurd is an idiot because they know somehow that Regan is going to kill Sigurd. Uh, So Sigurd beats him to it. He stands victorious. Regan, Fafnir, and Otter a long time ago are dead and Sigurd now has the cursed gold and ring. This is the major part of the saga of the Volsungs. This is the most famous. This is what is usually depicted in art um, throughout Scandinavia. Uh, and it's if it rings a bell, it's probably the part you understood first because you have encountered it at some point in your life. This second section, Sigurd and the Dragon, is it's it's the reason the saga is so renowned. This is the epic part of the tale. This is what Wagner would turn into the opening of his ring ring cycle, where the hero is Germanized as Siegfried. He would become the most famous of German heroes. And of course, two world wars would leave a sort of stain on him forever. J.R.R. Tolkien, of course, took inspiration from this, but far more than your average reader understands. Uh, If you are interested in looking in my archives, I did a a podcast on Beowulf. And in my Beowulf podcast, I pointed out that despite how significant dragons are on our Western psyche, the Northern tradition only has two dragons in stories and a couple more in myths. We have the Beowulf dragon who uh, Beowulf dies fighting and We have Fafnir. They're the two most significant dragons to come from the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages. They sit on hordes of gold, brooding and laying their serpentine curses upon it. They're usually very clever and thus extremely dangerous. And there are events, sometimes major ones, after the dragon is killed. Tolkien readers love seeing the connection to The Hobbit, But Smaug is really the Beowulf dragon. Fafnir sees his Tolkien representation most in the Turin Turambar episode of the Silmarillion. In fact, the hero who kills the dragon, Turin, uh, is a child of Hurin. And um, that episode of the Silmarillion has its own expanded book called The Children of Hurin. So just, just as the Volsun saga, which is famous for Sigurd, um, the children of Hurin is famous for Turin Turambar. Turin is just like Sigurd, a great hero with a great sword who is eventually doomed. Uh, Turin kills the great dragon Glaurung, who, like Fafnir, uh, is flightless, a writhing, twisting serpent who has this underbelly pierced and dies cursing the hero. 
there is the sibling incest of Sigmund and Signy. Uh, this happens with Turin and his own sister. Um, the hero acquires a mighty helmet and uh, the, the dead dragon's gold. Uh, and it hangs over the remainder of the hero's days like a curse. Here, things start to take a slow turn from the mythic to the historic. The next step is sometimes different depending on the version you read. This is where the German version gets decidedly different than the Norse. But what Norse, not Norse, Norse, but what usually happens is Sigurd discovers a sleeping warrior who he awakens and find to be, finds to be the lovely Brynhild. Uh, she may be a Valkyrie, um, but she's in this state because Odin stabbed her with a sleeping thorn for refusing to marry uh, any man who knows fear. She would only marry a man without fear. This is obviously a precursor to the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale that would also be adapted in Germany by the Grimm brothers. Again, Odin influences Sigurd's fate, and if Brynhild is a Valkyrie, that means she works for or is, even is a daughter of Odin. Uh, of course, Brumhilda in the German version is Voltan's daughter. She gives Sigurd beer, which is very kind of her. She teaches him how to use magic runes, which is handy, and she gives him other advice. They agree to marry when they can. There's another large family uh, he encounters, but the main one in this family is Gudrun, who becomes the sort of secondary uh, protagonist, although she doesn't really start that way. Uh, she doesn't become a, a protagonist, more of an anti-hero, I suppose, until after Sigurd's death. Spoiler alert, Sigurd's going to die. It's a Norse saga. They're not usually happy. Sigurd is given a drink that makes him forget uh, Brunhild. Um and he's such a fine specimen of a man that Gudrun marries him. He lets her eat some of the dragon heart, which is, I guess, keeping very well. I don't know if, you know, he made dragon heart jerky or what he did. Um, and they have a son named after his dad, Sigmund. Gunnar, Gudrun's sister, uh, sorry, Gunnar, uh, Gudrun's brother, wants to marry Brunhild now that uh, she but she's trapped in a hall surrounded by fire as as uh, 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 Dr. King uh, his name is Dr. King in Django Unchained that's weird I just realized that but yes it is Dr. King who rescues a slave really King Schultz that's his name Dr. King Schultz anyways I got sidetracked by MLK references um, there's again shape-shifting uh, as Gudrun and as, as sorry as as Gunner and Sigurd switch shapes which is a cool trick and uh, disguised as a fearless version of Gunner but actually the fearless Sigurd he wins Brunhild's hand um, uh, because she's been waiting around because Sigurd forgot to come back and she's trapped in a hall of fire or something unfortunately rivalries develop between these two women over whose husband is better and again there's this i don't there's not a overwhelming misogyny to the norse sagas um not not greater than in any other myths um in fact 
it might be my own reading, but I like to see uh, fairly strong female characters um, within the Norse and Icelandic sagas, but female feuds tend to lead to male bloodshed uh, in, in the Norse sagas. So I don't know, maybe somebody smarter than me should do a, 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 a better feminist critical reading of this than I can do. Of course, the irony here is that the women are both essentially praising Sigurd because the fearless gunner was Sigurd in disguise. Um, he's the one who made the fearless act of leaping through the fire to get Brynhild. Um, but things escalate and, as is so common, uh, it moves towards tragedy. Gudrun's brothers plot against Sigurd. And oddly, they give their brother Guthrum meat from a snake and a wolf, which makes him violent somehow. I guess it's sort of a skin-changing thing inside, a berserker thing. Maybe it's psychedelic meat, but it's more subtle because we're at the end of the mythic portion now, and we're more historical. So Guthrum enters Sigurd's bedchamber and stabs the sleeping hero, but as he's seeking, sneaking out, uh, Sigurd, the dying Sigurd, wakes up, throws his sword Gram at the fleeing murderer and cuts Guthrum in two. Only then does Sigurd die. So even his death is epic. Although he stays in bed, it's still an epic death. Brunhild, still loving Sigurd, stabs herself and as she is dying, foretells Gunnar and Gudrun's futures. This is hugely significant because dying curses don't have to be delivered by a dragon to have Power. The Norse were petrified of the curse of the dying. As well, because she's dying, Brunhild is between the worlds of life and death, mirroring uh, 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 Odin in a way. Um, she has a special second sight. If she's a Valkyrie or a daughter of Odin or both, uh, it's all the more potent. But here she is taking some of Odin's power, some of his role as... Uh, and, and, as all things mythical retreat uh, from the latter third of the tale. Shaken by this prophecy, Gunnar fulfills Brunhild's dying request and gives Sigurd a proper Viking funeral. He builds a bonfire and burns the corpses of Sigurd, Brunhild, and the two halves of Guthorm, and, uh, a little horrifically, also burns Sigurd and uh, Gudrun's three-year-old son Sigmund, which I didn't think was necessary, but well, that's how heroes go sometimes in Norse tales. Well, no, okay, let me take an aside to say that a, a, a really wealthy Viking, sometimes they would burn his slaves, maybe his his wife with him, and so uh, I just, little Sigmund never got a chance. The rest of the tale now turns to these misadventures of Gudrun who through more of a who though sorry who who though she was more of an antagonist in the middle section becomes the story's protagonist or antihero this seems strange but remember that this saga had been told and retold for nearly a thousand years before being written down in the 13th century the legend of Siegfried and Brumhilda became a significant german tale to be immortalized in opera and bastardized by the nazis what began deeply lodged as a myth now attacks some true history and with Sigurd gone we only see Odin once more at the very end Gudrun runs away 
after the tragedy of Sigurd and is forced by the king of Denmark to marry a barbarian invader named Atli. Of course, like I said, this is clearly based on Attila the Hun. Gudrun has picked the gift of prophecy up from Brynhild, I guess. She is able to read Atli's dreams, and she reads runes to tell the future. Atli is after Sigurd's cursed gold, and despite Gudrun's attempts to defend them, Atli betrays and kills her brothers. The most famous image from this late section is Gunnar tied up. Okay, Gunnar, the 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 brother who uh, uh, the most famous of her brothers. Gunnar is tied up and thrown into a viper pit. Gudrun throws him down a harp, which he plays with his toes, putting all but one of the snakes to sleep. Sadly, the remaining one has the resolve to get past this uh, little lullaby and kill Gunnar. Gudrun revenges herself on her husband, Atli. She kills his sons, feeds him their hearts and blood. He does not learn any special speech from this. And when Atli passes out from drinking, she and her nephew Niflung kill him in his sleep. Now, the real Attila died in his tent drunk, drowning on the blood from one of his chronic nosebleeds. But allegedly, his vengeful wife was beside him and may have murdered him. So there is a touch of history connected to this. Uh, Gudrun and Niflung uh, burn Atli's hall with his men in it. The last grim adventure of Gudrun sees her and her daughter by Sigurd, one Svanhild, lost at sea, swept to the court of King uh, Jonakr, who forces Gudrun to marry him, and they have three sons. Another king named Jomenbrek wants to marry Svanhild, but when she falls for his son, Jomenbrek has them both killed brutally trampling Gudrun's daughter with horses. That's not really optimistic at this end. Gudrun tells her sons to kill Jormenrek, so they cut off his hands and feet, but before they can cut off his head, he calls for his huskarls. Huskarls are are professional bodyguards, uh, like the ones that Harold Godwinson had uh, at the Battle of Hastings when he was defeated by the Normans. Gudrun sings a song of lamentation, and her fate is not revealed, weirdly enough. What happens to her is not shown. However, the housecarls can't harm her sons with their weapons. But then Odin appears and gives them some advice. I am quoting from page 109. In the action, the brothers had not observed their mother's wishes as they had used stones to wound. Now men attacked them, but they defended themselves bravely and well, killing many of the attackers. Iron was no avail against the brothers. Then a one-eyed man, tall and ancient, came up and said, You are not wise if you do not know how to kill these these men. King Jormenrek answered, Advise us if you can. He said, You should stone them to death. Thus it was done, and from all directions, stone flew at them. So ended the lives of Hamdir and Sorli, Gudrun's sons. And so Odin, trickster, tricky that he is, shows up and gets them stoned. Um, The saga ends with her sons dying brutally, and just as 
Odin's rising again uh, echoes the influence of Christianity, uh, this death by stoning may, may do same. Okay, let's consider Odin's role in this story. Many of the sagas, especially the older ones, see an appearance uh, or two of the Allfather. He's usually dressed as an old man with a big hat. He's got the one eye, of course. Um, he dispenses wisdom and sometimes takes direct action. As the Norse encountered Christianity, it influenced uh, the stories. Odin hanging himself for knowledge to rise again is, of course, uh, echoing Christ. It's an allusion to the Christ story. Although he does not come back even better than before, he's still a jerk. He has the most involvement in Sigurd's story and the most mythic portions of the story. As the saga comes closer to reality, Odin disappears and Brunhild and uh, Gudrun um, they show versions of his powers. When he shows up at the end to tell the Huskurls to stone Gudrun's sons, it's a complete reversal of the If Any of You Is Without Sin episode with Jesus. It's almost as if the more this story takes place um, from Christianity, the more it takes from Christianity, the, the more pagan Odin behaves, as if he's trying to retain um, the old ways. Another common saga trope uh, we have here is the the strong women initiating a feud uh, between men or families. All through the more historical Icelandic sagas, we see this some matriarch calling out her men, usually calling them out, uh, telling them they're sissies, and then a bloodbath ensues. Gudrun begins as a, a tricky sort of character. Then, as a petty instigator, then she becomes the tragic heroine, although we don't know what happens to her. It's just everybody she has is either trampled or stoned. Her actions lead to the death of her husbands, brothers, daughter, sons. Often in the sagas, the honor and um, uh, reputations of a woman can cause the most bloodshed of all. Honor was big to everybody, uh, men and women. Then we got cursed treasure and cursed rings, especially associated with dragons. It's a worldwide cliche. Tolkien uses it through his legendarium as well. Shapeshifting is a common trick of both the gods and the Norse heroes. But another thing that matters here and attaches the tale to Odin again is the wisdom and prophecy presented by the dead or dying, right? There is, there are mysteries beyond the veil of death. Um, the dragon's curses have an extra special potency because he's on his death trench. Yeah. Finally, revenge and blood feud was so prevalent in the Viking world that each country had this complex system of guilds, guilds, dealing with the killings and feuds. If you read the Icelandic family sagas, and you should... It's a wonder that that little island had any population at all with so many killings and revenges going on. The Otter story shows how important this concept was to the Old Norse. You could actually hold gods to the idea of Guild. This was uh, a material society focused on attaining wealth and land. These two pursuits were the main push behind the Viking raids, of course. Uh, a, a person's life had a definable value in silver or in kind. I don't want to know how many cows I'm worth. Yeah, I'd probably find it depressing. 
when he killed a man, you paid the Ware Guild to prevent a feud from breaking out. The other party had to be satisfied and not carry out revenge if the payment was sufficient so that the feud didn't keep escalating eternally. It didn't always work, but it was a practical theory. Odin, Loki, and Honir kill Otter and the demand that his skin be covered by gold is a mythic example of Guild. It's a metaphor because what do the gods have to fear from this family, but it shows that even the gods respect it. Um, it also is the source of a kenning. Unfortunately, because the gods are tricky, the, the payment involves a cursed ring and cursed gold and turns one poor sap into a brooding dragon, but you can't say that it didn't pay up when they were told to. Richard Wagner was anti-Semitic and Adolf Hitler was Adolf Hitler. However, the Volsungsa saga is one of the great legends of the Norse and Germanic world. Its association with the losing side in two world wars, as well as with the scum of humanity, has seen it lose import and popularity. Yet, for the spirit of the legendary North, its only peer is Beowulf, and unlike the Anglo-Saxon Viking tale that is Beowulf, the Saga of the Volsungs is purely sourced from the North. I want to thank you for listening today. This has been the Structured Rambling Podcast. And I don't know what I should wish you, but I hope wherever you go, whoever you are, and whatever you do, that flights of Valkyries see you to your rest. Oh.